who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You are listening to episode 27 of Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 65, Diurnia Orbital, March 25, 2373. I had a 1000 appointment with William Simpson, and after a big to-do over bodyguards and security, I managed to convince Ms. Arione that I did not really need her tagging along to make sure the throngs of potential passengers would not mug me along the way. Of course, I cheated by suggesting that she needed to stand by in case Ms. Maloney needed help. The office looked much the same as it had the last time. I thought the receptionist was a new face, but I couldn't be sure. The loud gabbling from the pit seemed just as loud and confusing as I remembered. It was a relief to close the door behind me and enter the cool, dim sanctuary of Mr. Simpson's office. Come in, my boy, come in. Mr. Simpson sat in his easy chair, looking out at the ships, and didn't look around when I entered, merely tilted his head a bit to send his words roughly in my direction. I walked around to the front of the empty chair and offered my hand to him. He smiled up at me and shook it warmly. Good morning, Mr. Simpson. Thank you for seeing me. Oh, not at all, not at all. He patted the arm of the empty chair. Sit, sit. Tell me, what's been happening? You've made a very nice start, haven't you? For nearly half a stand, I recalled all of our adventures— Mostly he sat and listened. Occasionally he asked a question about this or that. He seemed most interested in the Du Bois incident and seemed intrigued by my firing of Chief Bailey. You're stuck in port now, aren't you, my boy? Yes, sir, until I find a new engineer. But I can't take that kind of chance with crew and passengers. There's just too much I don't know to risk it, and I had no confidence in Chief Bailey's knowledge and abilities. Quite right, my boy, quite right. He glanced at me. Tell me, was that a difficult decision? No, sir. The difficult decision was making the run back from Greenfields with the chief engineer I didn't trust. And why did you do that? Ultimately, it came down to the contracts. The incremental risk of taking the expedient path seemed minimal, especially since I'd given the ship as thorough a going over as I could. We'd committed to getting the passengers and cargo to Diurnia. My base of support is here, and I reasoned that it would be easier to replace him from here than out on Greenfields. Assuming you made it at all, eh? I gave a weak laugh. 
Well, yes, there is that. Every time you leave port, there's a chance you'll die a horrible lingering death out there. It's small, but it's always there. I did what I could, and, rightly or wrongly, rolled the dice. I quite understand, my boy. We sat then and gazed out. The slow dance of ships and tenders in the darkness offered a never-ending variety to the view. So how can I help you today, Captain? Mr. Simpson asked with a small smile and a sidelong glance. I've come about the note, sir. It's due in a couple of days, and the ship hasn't earned enough in so short a time. I wondered if you'd found a buyer for the stock so we might avoid default. He reached over and patted my forearm with one bony hand. Here's what will happen on the 26th, my boy. He laced his fingers together across his chest and continued. Assuming you haven't the liquid assets needed to repay the loan, you will default, and Larks, Simpson, and Green will take ownership of that single share of stock that you've assigned as collateral. Once that happens, we'll sell it to an investor, removing ourselves from ownership and leaving you to deal with your board of directors. You already have an investor, sir. We do, my boy, we do. Then why not sell them a share of unencumbered stock and let me pay off the loan without incurring default? He turned his head toward me. If we did that, we'd forego the opportunity to earn a profit of a million and a half credits. He shook his head and turned back to gaze out through the armor glass. We've invested a great deal of time and money in getting you started up, Captain. You'll walk away with an unencumbered company and the opportunity to succeed or fail on your own without long-term liabilities. Please don't deny us a modest profit on the transaction. I steepled my hands in front of my face, resting my elbows on the arms of the chair and sorting through what he had said. When the transaction cleared, I would have my ship. He would have an extra million and a half that probably belonged to me. He was taking advantage of his position in what was probably an inappropriate manner, but I had to admit that he had done very well by me, lining up enough credits to finance my startup and go into business. Granted, he took a commission on each sale, and while the 15% profit from the sale of that single share seemed like a large amount, taken across the total of 40 million, it did seem modest. The reality was that I had no choice in the matter. William Simpson held the cards, and, like it or not, they added up to a winning hand for him. I understand, sir. He cast a sidelong look in my direction. Do you now? You took a risk on the note and you deserve the reward. I've got to go in concern, so while that extra capital would be welcome, lacking it is not going to interfere with my operation. It was a shrewd move on your part, sir. The left side of his mouth twitched up in a small smile, and he turned to gaze out once more. Thank you, my boy. I've learned a few tricks of the trade over the decades. Tell me, how did you get the Wanderer to review your ship? I'm not sure, but I suspect it was a result of the Du Bois incident. It gave us a higher profile than we could have expected. Silver linings and all that, eh? Well, I can't believe it was merely luck, sir, but it could have been nothing more than being at the right place at the right time. When I posted the passenger availability, it placed us at the top of any list sorted by arrival date. Well, you've done a very good job at establishing your niche, my boy. Very good indeed. Thank you, sir. The ship is a brilliant design, and I really don't understand why it didn't catch on. He snickered. Freight moves money, Captain, and it doesn't molest your crew. He shot me a sidelong glance. Bitter experience forced me to grant him the point. Well, I think that's it, then. He held out his hand and looked at me. I'll send you the name of your new board member after the transaction's clear in a couple of days. In the meantime, I believe you've an engineer to find. I do, Mr. Simpson, and thank you for your time. As I walked back to the ship, I considered the exchange and realized that I should be getting another $12 million in my own right from the Chernyakova settlement. 
I snickered softly when I realized the whole enterprise was founded based on a salvage claim that I had not yet received. The reporter had been correct in his accusation that without the settlement I wouldn't have founded Icarus. It just wasn't in the way he had it laid out. I pondered the improbabilities involved all the way back to the ship. When I got back aboard, I found a grav trunk locked to the deck at the base of the ladder. I trotted up to the first deck, heading for the galley and some explanation. I rounded the corner and found Ms. Arione and Ms. Maloney talking to a ship-suited figure sitting with her back to the door. As I opened my mouth to speak, she turned and stabbed me with a sapphire smile. I heard you needed an engineer, Captain. Even though her words were barely audible, Chief Gearhart's voice seemed to echo in my head. What are you doing here? The inanity of the question made me wince. Her eyes danced and the left corner of her mouth twitched in a smile. Having coffee and catching up on the news with the crew. I finally realized that I stood rooted to the deck just inside the galley door and moved, experimentally, just to see if I could. I managed to cross to the coffee pot and pour a cup without tripping on my feet or breaking anything. When I turned back to look at them again, Miss Arione had a smug smile on her face while Miss Maloney looked more amused than anything. Chief Gerhardt's expression was at once amused, resigned, and calculating. Yes, I said at last. I need an engineer. You know of any who are available? She gave a little sideways bob of her head. I might. Depends on the terms. Her expression lost some of the amusement and took on something a bit more determined. Before I could respond, Ms. Maloney rose smoothly from the table and turned to me. Captain, I need to get lunch going. Perhaps you and Chief Gearhart could move your negotiations to the cabin. Ms. Arione muttered, and it was just getting interesting. Thank you, Ms. Maitland. We'll get out of your way. Chief? I led the way out of the galley and across the passage to the cabin. I held the door open for her and then closed it behind us as she sauntered in and gave the room a once-over. Not exactly as spacious as your old cabin, is it, Ishmael? It's not much to look at, but I don't get to look at it much. I waved her into a seat and took the one across from her. She laughed, and I almost forgot what we were doing. So I heard, Ms. Arione and Ms. Maloney, she arched an eyebrow in my direction, have been quite entertaining. How'd it go with the money man? We'll be sailing again. The old scallywag is getting an extra million and a half, but I'm getting the company back unencumbered. And you need a chief engineer. Her words were statement, not question. I do. The last one wasn't exactly competent, or perhaps I'd just been spoiled. I felt the smile on my face, weak but there. I'm interested in the job, Captain. She sat back in her chair and folded her hands together in front of her chest, elbows on the arms of her chair. You mentioned terms. Yes. We need to get some things straight. Okay. That seems reasonable. What did you have in mind? Your attitude toward me, Captain. And I need to know a few things. For a moment I thought I might need to check the grav plates because it felt like the whole ship twisted sideways. My attitude. She nodded and stood. The chairs weren't that close together, but the step she took toward me brought her close enough that I could feel the warmth of her body. Your attitude, Ishmael. I looked up to where she looked down at me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as of this moment, I'm not in your crew. My mind couldn't keep up for some reason, but I managed to nod. Yes, you're not in my crew. I haven't decided whether I'm going to work for you or not, so we have that understood. Yes, I understand that. Good, she said, and reached down, grabbed the lapel of my ship suit and tugged. She pulled me against her, 
stopping with her lips only centimeters away from mine. In that case, Captain, my captain, her voice was a low growl. You and I need to come to a little understanding about your attitude, about fraternization. Negotiations lasted a couple of stands, but in the end, I believe we came to a lasting agreement. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Chapter 66, Diurnia Orbital, March 25, 2373. We've missed lunch, she mumbled sleepily. I know the cook, I told her, looking up from where my fingers stroked lazy circles on her skin. You realize you have one of the richest women in the quadrant working in your galley? I shrugged. At the moment, she's as broke as any of us, but she has the advantage of a good education. Are you ever serious? Sometimes. I refocused on her face. She is broke. Jarvis froze her assets for the duration. She's as broke as somebody with apartments on at least three separate orbitals and a string of her own art galleries can be. <laughs> well, as long as she has something to fall back on if this whole chef who will take over the biggest company in the quadrant thing doesn't work out for her. It's important to have options, I agreed. I looked at her for a while, savoring the moment. Can I ask, why? Why what? I waved a hand. All this... I very distinctly remember you're putting me right about your feelings about me, and this seems inconsistent. You complaining? Curious. Well, I needed the job, and I thought maybe I could trade my body for a berth. I stiffened, and not in a good way. Gods, you should be named insufferable, not Ishmael. She reached up and pulled my head down for a kiss. It's a joke, you twit. She kissed me again. I wouldn't trade my body for less than the ship. She made my head swim, and I stared at her, trying to make enough sense out of the situation to reach some understanding. She settled herself and looked up at me. After a moment, she began speaking. Ishmael, you were being an ass, mooning about, making everybody on the ship crazy. 
you weren't getting your job done very well, I wasn't getting my job done very well, and nobody on the ship could figure out why in the world we just didn't get it over with. She smiled at me very sadly. You're such a stiff-necked bastard that you couldn't let your precious ethics go long enough to figure out whether they meant anything or not. You made up your mind, and by all that was holy and right, you were going to live by your code. So I put you out of your misery. You lied. She chuckled, and I was momentarily distracted by the way it made her body shimmer in the light. Yes, you putz, I lied. It practically killed me, but I lied. I thought there were tears in the corners of her eyes, but I couldn't be sure. I felt hurt and a little angry that she hadn't told me the truth. But didn't I have any say in that? You sacrificed yourself for the good of the ship, and I didn't even know? Hmm, she said with a bit of a playful smile on her lips, but a look of deadly earnestness in her eyes. Very good questions, Captain, my Captain. Don't you think maybe you could have thought of them a little earlier? Like maybe before you got all high and mighty and decided that you weren't going to screw with crew, perhaps? I collapsed on the bunk beside her, staring up at the overhead. Damn, I said. You'll learn to really hate it when I'm right. I already do, I told her, turning my head to look at her. You only think you do now. Wait until you've had a few decades to really get to deal with it. She grinned. I smiled back and reached over to stroke her cheekbone with the tip of a finger. You know what? That's one threat I really like the sound of. She waggled her eyebrows. I thought you might. She reached for me, pulling me to her for another kiss. She let me go and pulled back far enough to be able to focus on my eyes. So, do I get the job? We've got no hot tub on this ship, I pointed out. Somehow I bet we managed to stay in hot water anyway, she said. Considering what's happened in the last three months, I suspect you're right. So, how about it, Captain, my Captain? Or are you going to put me ashore to slink back to Gwen with my tail between my legs? I sat up a bit to admire the legs in question from a better angle. Hmm. Could you roll over so I can see the tail? She punched me on the arm, and the ensuing wrestle lasted until our giggling got the best of us. Standard contract, double share, base plus ten, I offered when we finally caught our breath. Cheapskate, base plus twenty. She took a firm grip on an exposed region of my anatomy and arched an eyebrow. It's not a figure of speech in this case, Captain, my Captain. Base plus fifteen, I counted, daring her. She dared, but capitulated after a moment. Okay, but you have to paint the cabin. I just painted it. Painted again. What color? She let me go with a grin. I'll let you know. I held out my hand. Deal. She looked at my hand and shook her head. I've got a much better way to seal this deal, Captain, my Captain. She reached up and pulled me down to her again. She was right. It was better, but it took a lot longer than a simple handshake. Much later, I rolled over and asked her, So when can you start? Uh, that depends. Have we put this fraternization issue away? I made a show of considering it for a moment, but grinned. I'm feeling pretty fraternized at the moment. In that case, I can start right away. What about the Agamemnon? She shrugged one shoulder. We got them a new engineer at Bright Hall. I rode back with him to help with his orientation. Then what? You were just going to sit, wait for me to show up? Something like that. I didn't figure you'd be away very long, and imagine my surprise when you showed up on the scanners while we were on final approach. And you just packed your kit and came over? Well, my kit was already packed. We only docked the day before you did. I was getting ready to put it into storage when I got the word from Stacy you needed an engineer. Miserioni? Is there another Stacy aboard? 
And Miss Maloney seemed to be working out nicely from the press. Why does her ship suit say Maitland? Cover story for security. She's supposed to be on a grand tour while in mourning for her late father. Uh-huh. She looked at me skeptically. Have you seen the Newsies? I'm not sure anybody's buying it. No, I'm not either, but we'll play along until the end of the stanier. She's already working without a bodyguard. No, Greta shook her head. She hired Stacy this morning. Why am I always the last to know? Honestly, my dear, I think it's because you're the slowest one of the lot, barring your charming, if somewhat dim, Mr. Herring. He's okay. Reminds me of myself at his age. She gave me a very doubtful look, but didn't press it. Anyway, you've got us to look out for you now. You can get on with your captaining without undue distraction. It was my turn to cast her a doubtful look. You think you're not going to be a distraction? Her cheeky grin twisted her smile to the side of her face. I said undo, didn't I? I glanced at the chrono as it clicked up to 1540. Well, we probably should get dressed and let the crew know we have an engineer. They know. How do you figure that? She gave me one of those looks again. Do you think we'd have spent all afternoon locked in your cabin otherwise? Well, negotiations could have broken down. We might not have come to terms, she snickered. Okay, you win. Let's go find out what's for dinner. Marcel's at 1900, she said, as she rolled out of our bunk and padded naked into the head. We just went there last night, I said. She stopped at the door and looked back over her shoulder. You went there last night. Tonight, I'm celebrating. Miss Maloney made the reservations already. She gave me a crooked grin and tisked before walking into the head and turning on the shower. The open door was all the invitation that I needed. Chapter 67, Diurnia Orbital, March 27, 2373. With the chief on board and assurances from William Simpson, the hard work began. When the chief and I ambled into the galley at 0600, we found Ms. Maloney behind the omelet pan. Ms. Arione greeted us with a smug, Good morning, Captain. Morning, Chief. She looked inordinately pleased with herself and gave me a private smirk. I suppose I earned it. Mr. Herring seemed to be aware that something had happened, but he really hadn't been privy to the inner workings, particularly the oddly proprietary relationship Ms. Arione exhibited when dealing with me. He smiled and nodded shyly, mostly at the Chief. Even after an evening in the relative informality of dining ashore, Chief Gearhart's raw presence was enough to stagger lesser mortals like ordinary spacers. Gods knew she staggered me, and I was a captain. Ms. Maloney seemed unchanged by the shift in personnel. I wondered at that. In a certain sense, she was more completely cut off with the departure of the last link to her old life. I suppose the betrayal we'd discovered mitigated the effect. The usual, Captain, she asked, with a warm smile and a flourish of the omelet pan. Please, Miss Maitland, and thank you. I drew off a mug of coffee and then got out of the way so Greta could get hers. As breakfast streamed off the range, I wasted no time in getting the day going. Chief, I'd like you to make sure the ship is spaceworthy today. I'm particularly concerned about the maintenance issues and the main components back in engineering. What kind of issues, Skipper? I don't think any of the major components like the fuse actors or grav generators have had any maintenance done in a long time. I didn't know enough to do it when I bought the ship, and I don't know how much your predecessor may have addressed. My fear is that he did nothing. Aye, aye, Captain, will do. Ms. Maitland, I could appreciate your insight into the passenger situation. In what way, Captain? I picked up my tablet and checked my facts. We now have 87 inquiries for passage. While I watched, the counter ticked up to 88. Your thoughts on how we deal with those without alienating them? She cut off a piece of her omelet and ate it while she pondered. As she did, she looked back and forth between the chief and me. Finally, she asked, how many burns do we have, Captain? 
She caught me flat-footed with that one. It seemed to come out of left field. Two doubles and the single over and under, I told her cautiously. Why do you ask? Instead of answering me, she turned to the chief. If it's not too indelicate to ask, chief... Greta twigged before I did. The engineering officer's compartment, she asked. Ms. Maloney gave her a smile and the tiniest of nods. Greta turned to me. I hate to put you on the spot, but I rather assumed I'd be living with you. I grinned at her, feeling a bit embarrassed. I guess I assumed that, too. Ms. Maloney smiled and gave a little nod. That's one more bunk we can rent. It's a single, but it's one more passenger. Ms. Arione took a deep breath and looked around the table, particularly at Mr. Herring and Ms. Maloney. Maybe two, she suggested. Ms. Maloney caught the gist of her thinking. If Perk takes the chief's quarters, that leaves us with two bunks. Ms. Arione shook her head. I'm thinking you take chief's quarters, Chris. Perk and I are both watchstanders. She looked at him. We've both lived in mixed berthing before. She let the sentence trail off a bit as nearly a question. Mr. Herring nodded with a nonchalant shrug. Sure, most of the time, actually. She turned back to Ms. Maloney. You need the single because your schedule is different. Two-thirds of the time, only one of us would be in the compartment at all. We'd only be there together when the captain has the watch. Are you sure? Ms. Maloney seemed a bit taken aback by the idea. She turned to Mr. Herring. And you? They both shrugged. It makes sense to me, Miss Maitland, Mr. Herring told her. Mixed birthing is pretty normal. I mean, I've enjoyed having a private room and all, but she's right. With just the two of us on different watches, most of the time nothing will be different. Ms. Arione looked to Miss Maloney. I adore having you as a bunkie, but looking at how to get the most out of the ship, putting you there and splitting the watchstanders gives us two extra bunks to rent and gives you a chance at a whole night's sleep. Ms. Maloney nodded slowly. True and gives us room for two people in each compartment. She looked at Mr. Herring, who shrugged, and then back at me. So you have four compartments and eight bunk spaces, Captain. How do we charge for them, Miss Maitland? She thought for a moment before speaking. By the compartment, when you post your fare availability, you should be able to post them with a description for each room's amenities. She grinned at me. And charge a lot. Thirty? I asked. Fifty she answered immediately. Discount the bunk rooms to 30, maybe. But as long as we have people lining up to take the spaces, we should charge what we can get. I pulled out the portable keyboard and fired up the console on the bulkhead. In a few keystrokes, I'd made a sample listing that included notations for number and size of bunks and the price of 50,000 credits per compartment. Yes, Ms. Maloney said without hesitation. Now where are we going? Kazyaninko. Everybody looked at me, some with frowns, others merely confused. Kazyanenko? Ms. Maloney asked. It's the best choice for cargo priorities. I can grab a few in the next couple of days if my analysis is right. Everybody around the table nodded and seemed engaged with the process. I looked to Greta. Before I post this, would you do a quick survey of engineering and see what kind of shape we're in? Sure. That was my first priority. I'd like to get underway in two days, but I'd also like to know we're going to arrive on the other end. Ms. Arione snickered. I like the way you think, Skipper. Okay, then, I said. Let's get breakfast cleared away and see how fast we can get things resettled, shall we? After the initial cleanup efforts, Greta went back to engineering, and we shooed Ms. Maloney out of the galley to move her stuff across the passage to make room for Mr. Herring. The rest of us did the dishes up and cleaned the mess deck. While we worked, I pulled up a cargo availability query on the console and snagged three dozen high-priority cubes going to Kazyanenko before we finished swabbing the deck. With the galley secured, I sent the two ratings to finish settling the move and made a quick note on Mr. Herring's record to make him able spacer. He was doing what I had asked and showed a lot of promise. 
I wondered if I could get him to take on astrogation and relieve me of the update process. I snorted quietly to myself and picked up another dozen cubes bound for Kazyanenko. In the meantime, I got to work on a canned reply to the people who had sent inquiry messages and started setting up a filtering system to route all messages to a storage area after sending the reply. I didn't know if it would be useful, but I didn't think it could hurt. By 10.30, the crew finished moving and had all the compartments ready for passengers. The only obstacle was the engineering audit, so I headed down to engineering to see where we stood. How are we doing, Chief? I asked as I stepped off the ladder. She pulled her head out of the maintenance panel on the sail generator and gave a kind of non-committal shrug. Could be a lot worse, Captain. Her tone twitted me a bit, but I think I liked it. Fuse actors are clean. Grav generators just needed a timer reset. The sail generators are in good shape. There's no planned maintenance on them for months. She paused and looked around the engineering. Scrubbers need attention, but they always do. If we're tanked up and have spares, we can leave this afternoon if you like. I started tanking when we docked. Spares should be nearly full. I think we used a couple of scrubber filters, and it's been about three months since I changed water filters, so they might be due as well. Did you log it when you changed them? Yeah, I did. You should find it in the engineering logs. I would if I had codes. With a little oops sound, I sat at the engineering console and gave her full access with a few keystrokes. There you go. Sorry about that. She kissed me on the top of my head. Thank you, dear. She made little shooing motions with her hands. Now, get out of my way. I have work to do, and I can't be tripping over captains while I'm doing it. Scoot. Shoo. Go captain something. I stood and stepped aside, but she stepped with me and claimed a smooch right there in the middle of engineering. It was a quick peck on the mouth, but there was promise in it. She stepped back and shooed me again. There. Now get. I chuckled all the way back up the ladder. By the time I got back to the galley, the rest of the crew was assembled, and somebody had made a fresh pot of coffee. Mr. Herring had a small pot of tea in front of him. They all looked up as I entered. Day after tomorrow, March 28th, we're bound for Kazyanenko, I said. I found my prepared availability poster for passengers and ran a quick calculation in my head to fill in the estimated arrival of April 11 before posting. Now we wait, I announced. Another few priority cubes showed up in the cargo list and I grabbed them while I was sitting there. What's for lunch, Miss Maitland? Soup and sandwiches, Captain. I trust that'll suffice. She smiled over her shoulder. Quite nicely, Miss Maitland. I stretched out my legs under the table and sat back in the chair. Well, I'll declare liberty for anybody who wants to go ashore. Return by 1000 on the 28th, if not before. Mr. Herring looked at Ms. Arione, who just shrugged and said nothing. Not going ashore, Mr. Herring, I asked. Not until after lunch, Skipper. He looked from one to another of us and asked, Is there anything else we need to do to get ready for guests? He looked toward Ms. Maloney. Nothing for me, thank you, Perk. He nodded and then looked to me. No, Mr. Herring, go forth and enjoy yourself. Thank you, Captain. After lunch. Chapter 68, Martha's Haven System, April 26, 2373. We were still two days out of Martha's Haven, inbound with passengers and freight out of Kazyanenko, when I got the priority message from DST. I had the evening watch and had just settled in after dinner when the message dropped into my private queue. Addressed to all the prize crew from the Chernyakova mission, the message told us that the winning bidder had defaulted on their payment. Officials in Brakal had scheduled a new auction slated to end on June 25, 2373. Payments contingent on the winning bid were voided, and officials would generate a new reckoning when the next auction closed. I sighed. Greta, who picked that moment to step onto the bridge, heard it and asked, Heavy sigh, Captain, my Captain. What was that for? The buyers of the Chernyakova defaulted. Brakal's having a new auction. No money? 
Not yet. Well, it's not like you need it right away. True, but it would be nice to have, particularly if we go to the Higby Yards. She grinned, kissed my mouth quickly, and ran her hand over my cropped hair before plunking herself into the engineering console beside me. We're not going to do that any time soon either, my dear. Also true, I admitted, but still. She shrugged and repeated it. But still. How's the ship holding up, I asked, more to make conversation than anything. She fired up the console and nodded. Really well. The scrubbers are the weak link on this ship. Those cartridges need changing all the time. Luckily, it's not a big job, but it's tedious. All the major components are rock solid. I've been over every single piece now, and other than a poor maintenance record over the last three stanniers, she's in good shape. It doesn't look like she was used very hard. The logs got purged when I took over, so I don't really know. I shrugged, turning to admire her in the glow of the console. A warmth washed over me as I realized what a lucky man I was. She saw me looking out of the corner of her eyes and tilted her face slightly to look at me. That's a silly grin. What brought that on? You. I just realized how lucky I am. I feel pretty lucky myself, she said, a gentle smile turning up the left side of her mouth. I'll confess I still have trouble reconciling this. What, that you and I are a couple? You still hung up on chain of command? I paused and blew out a deep breath. A little. She swung her seat around to face me and took one of my hands in both of hers. We're both here for the ship, and for each other. If something happens to the ship, then something happens to you. I can't stand the thought that that might happen, but there it is. Do you think your being the captain makes any difference there? I shook my head. No, but what if you get tired of me and decide to leave me in the ship? Well then, we'll be safe in port someplace, won't we? She cocked her head at me. I'm not likely to get out and walk. She sighed and shook her head. You're such a bundle of what-ifs and might-bes. You're letting what you have slip away. My father always told me that chasing after everything I wanted was a fool's game, but wanting everything I had would bring me happiness. She smiled and leaned in to give me a very unprofessional public display of affection. That advice never made more sense than it does right now, love, she said as she settled back in her seat. The helm beeped, and I turned to see it make an automatic adjustment and settle back on the beam. You really don't need to keep a bridge watch, you know. But what if... I cut myself off as she arched an eyebrow. The proximity alerts will tell you long before you'll be able to see anything bearing down on us, and you can watch the repeaters in our cabin, or in the galley if you want to. She waved a hand at the armor glass all around. You've got a nice view up here, sure, but you've got almost as good a view from either of those two places as well. Okay, yes. All right, call it a question of perception. Perception. If you were a passenger and knew nobody was at the helm, would you sleep as well? well of course. No, not as an engineer who knows how all this works, but as somebody who doesn't know, somebody who's not a spacer. Do you think they'd appreciate it? It was her turn to sit back and think. No, she said after a few heartbeats. I don't suppose they would. At the prices we're charging, the least we can do is keep watch. But that's not why you're doing it. A small smile creased her lips. No, I agreed. It's not. Do you have a reason? I looked out into the deep dark, looking at the growing disk of Martha's Haven and the cluster of spinning dots around it. Yes. The Chernyakova. What's that got to do with it? They all died because something went wrong with the ship, something they should have seen. If they'd seen it, they'd still be alive. Maybe she said almost instantly. From what little you've said about it, the ship was a catastrophe waiting to happen, and they had a bridge watch. 
Yes, and even having a bridge watch didn't help them, so I know it's irrational. But if we're ever that close, I want to know we did everything we could to make sure we didn't end up there. And maybe whoever's on watch won't catch it. Maybe the alarm will wake us in time. I don't know. I just feel safer with somebody here at the helm if it all goes wrong. Superstitious, probably, but it's how I see it. She smiled at me. It's your ship, Captain, my captain. You run it the way you need to. She tilted her head to one side before continuing. But I still don't understand your hang-up on the chain of command. I know. That's probably just as irrational. That's been part of me for as long as I've been sailing around out here. It started on the Lois, and even though I know that the issue is really not an absolute, it's just been one of my rules, a thing I lived by. And now, Ishmael? The gentleness of her tone didn't hide how much my answer mattered to her. Now I'm not sure I was right. You're showing me another way to live out here, a way I don't really understand yet, but I have to say I'm enjoying learning about it, and I certainly appreciate what the passengers see in having a view of the stars from their bunks. I hear a but, my dear. What is it? What happens when the honeymoon's over, when things aren't going so well? Well, we try not to fight in front of the passengers, and the crew will understand. We've dealt with worse, haven't we? Worse? William Paul's run in with the muggers, helping him heal. Well, yes, but what else were we supposed to do? He was part of the crew. Her eyebrows twitched. Okay, yes, I see your point. Ishmael, we have each other. We have a ship. We have a crew. We have a very nice little operation going here, but you know what? If you wanted to take over the restaurant from your father and live on the station for the rest of your life, I'd be there. She looked at me hard without a lick of humor. But you're not going to do that, because you love it out here. So do I. We've got a ship to run, and you and I both know neither of us has the skills, knowledge, or disposition to do it alone. Whatever it is, we'll deal with it, because that's what we do. So what does it matter what our ranks and titles are? You're overthinking it and missing the point. I am? Yes, my dear Captain, you are. She fairly glowed in the dim light. Her eyes gleamed, and her smile held me transfixed. I love you. The words surprised me when they slipped out of my mouth. I hadn't realized I was holding them in. There. That didn't hurt, did it? She asked. No. Actually, it felt rather good. She smiled then and leaned back into me. Good, she said softly. I love you too. She gave me a kiss on the lower lip. Now stop being such a stiff-necked ignoramus and relax. You're a good captain, and I think we're going to make a great team, so get over it. She grinned at me, and even though there really wasn't enough light on the bridge to see the color, I felt the sapphire in her eyes. The helm beeped again, and I turned to make sure it adjusted correctly. As I did, she stood and stepped behind me, lacing her arms around my shoulders and squeezing me gently from behind the pilot's chair, kissing the top of my head and leaning down to my ear. I'll be in our bunk, she whispered. Wake me when you get off watch. She gave me a small kiss on the ear, and her hand stroked across my shoulders as she straightened and walked to the ladder. She gave me a wicked smile before picking her way delicately down, leaving me wondering if the environmental controls were off because the temperature on the bridge seemed suddenly a bit warmer than normal. Thanks for listening to Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is Larry O'Gaff, a traditional tune performed by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad and is used with permission of the artists. You can find this and other works by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. 
This has been a presentation from Dorendas, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information about the book, the author, or the golden age of the Solar Clipper, visit www.solarclipper.com.